1 Corinthians chapter 6, and um, I want to talk to you about uh, the dynamic difference between the two kingdoms and the, the inhabitants or citizens of those two kingdoms. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll just be looking at verses 9 through 11. As soon as I find it, we will. There we are. Two types of people, uh, those who will inherit the kingdom of God and those who will earn the kingdom of darkness. Those are two kinds. What's the difference, though, between these two, two types of people, those who are citizens of these two very different kingdoms? What, what is the difference? And I would say to you that the difference is a dynamic one. And when we use the word dynamic, what we mean is life. There is something living and dynamic about the persons who inherit the kingdom of God. There is something dead of the soul about those who do not. That's the difference. It's not sinlessness that gets you there. It's Christ in you that gets you there. And he makes all the difference in every area of life. So there is a great difference between the two. And, you know, Carrie was sharing a little bit this morning about the dynamic difference between her life before Christ and her life now. There is a great difference, a great gap. We don't just kind of ease into this thing and become better people. What happens is we get a better master. His name is Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. But I want to just walk us through these verses of Scripture. And what we're going to notice first is that we have some instruction here about the kingdom of God. And we're talking about what's the difference between these two kingdoms? What's the difference between the citizens of these two kingdoms? And so in verse 9, the first half of this verse, remember Paul is speaking to a church now. And his instruction regarding the kingdom of God, first of all, he gives them a reminder about inheritance. And look what he says in the ninth verse of this sixth chapter. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's a reminder here. Now, when he says the word unrighteous, and he's going to use that word over again, the, the point is that the people who are in the kingdom of God, he's, he's talking about the people who have this blessed, enduring, forever relationship with God. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Those folks who have that eternal, blessed relationship with God. And it is a matter of something that is not earned. He Notice in verse 9, he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. To be in the kingdom is a matter of inheritance. It's not a matter of performance. It's inheritance. It's granted by God's grace. It's granted by God's grace only to his children. And Paul is startled here because the Corinthians apparently have forgotten that not everyone inherits the kingdom of God. They supposedly or evidently from the things he's saying to them they have thought to themselves well everybody's in the kingdom of God unless you lose it somehow that everybody's in the kingdom of God unless you do something really 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 bad and I just have I would just have one question for for, for anyone from Corinth and this this how would you define really really bad we've seen your city we've seen your behavior what is bad 
because you people do anything and everything. But they're, they're beginning to think, you know, that maybe there's not such a strict line in the sand after all. Maybe there's not such a division after all. Maybe it is that all of humanity is basically good and we're all in the kingdom to begin with. You know, it's like when you have a class of students, like everybody has an A in here. You know, you say things like that knowing that before they walk out the door, like seven of them just lost it. But, you know, but we tend to say everybody gets a trophy, you know, kind of thing. And they're thinking this way and Paul's like, what is wrong with you? Do you not know? Do you not understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he goes on and gives them a warning about their ignorance. He says, do not be deceived. So he's rebuking them a little bit. He's saying there's a difference of the citizens of these two kingdoms. And the difference is gigantic. It's not a small difference. It's a huge difference. And the world system in which you are living seeks to deceive us into thinking that almost everyone gets into the kingdom. They were all just human. They were all basically the same. And it disregards the sinful nature of humanity altogether. So let's think about this. Is that the way your family works? Is everyone that you know in your neighborhood? Are they written into your will, into your inheritance unless they do something really bad? Well, it doesn't work that way with God either. The only ones who gain the inheritance are those who are his children. And that is a select group of people. Only family, my friends, only family inherits anything. Only family. And it's the same with God. So the question you have to ask yourself then is, what does it require for a person to become a family member in God's family? That's what you want to know. What, what does it require? What is God saying here? How does a person get there? And the Corinthians had flipped this thing upside down and thought, well, everybody's already there unless they somehow fall out of heaven, I guess. And, and Paul is saying, you guys are deceived. So there's some instruction about the kingdom he wants to start with here. And we're going to talk, talking about the difference between the kinds of families. He said, you have to understand there is a difference. There is a great difference between the two kingdoms and there is a great difference between the citizens of those two kingdoms. So then he moves from there and talks about the exclusions then from the kingdom of God. If there's a difference, then who's in and who's out and how does that happen? So look at the second half now of verse 9 and we'll read uh, this down to verse 10 where he says, do not be deceived. And then notice what he says next. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you didn't find yourself on that list, we have another one we can go to. But this is pretty plain talk. These kind of people do not inherit. This is the definition of the unrighteous that he spoke of in verse 9. How do, you, how do you define the unrighteous? And he gives us a list. Now, this is not supposed to include everything. But he's trying to say to them, these are the kinds of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. These people are not described as being unrighteous because they've done something wrong. That's not it. 
They're described as unrighteous because that's what they are. This is the kind of person that they've become. See, he doesn't say anybody who's ever committed idolatry. He doesn't say that. Or adultery or homosexuality even. He's not pointing out what are the deadly sins. He's pointing out this is the kind of person that's dead in sin. And so this is the kind of person that they become. And he's saying to them, you can't be a practicer of these things and be in the kingdom of God at the same time. This is the kind of person that these people are at heart. This is not the case for a Christian who's done something wrong. This is the kind of people these folks are at heart. This is what they've become. And he's saying those kind of people, here's what they're doing. They are willfully continuing in their sins and they glory in it. The issue is a heart issue. And this heart and these hearts are in rebellion against God and they don't care. And what Paul's saying is, you, you have to understand, those kind of people, those are not the marks of those who inherit the kingdom. Those, that kind of lifestyle is not the kind of lifestyle that is a mark of someone who is a child of God. Now, here's the thing. Can a Christian commit any one of these sins? Yes. You came to Christ, you were justified, but you ain't yet sanctified. So a Christ, don't, don't ever think to yourself, oh, I, I would never do that. Well, I hope you wouldn't. But, but don't ever think that you're incapable. You, each one of us, we're capable of every one of these sins in this list. But there is a difference. We don't want to be that kind of person. That's not what we're aiming for in life. This is not what we desire to be. This is not what we're longing to become. We don't want to become one of these. It's against our nature. Why is it against our nature? Because we have the life of Christ in us. So it's a different deal altogether. Any, any Christian can sin in any of those following ways. But at some point, you're going to have enough of it. And you'll get enough of God's woodshed. Now, some of you young people don't know what the woodshed is. You don't want to go there. You know, I just say, that's just where you go. My, my, my best friend and, and growing up... And, his dad called it the garage. And he said, boys, we're getting ready to go to play garage. And we're like, no, we don't want to play garage. We, we knew that didn't mean waxing the car. That meant get your butt worn out. We don't want it. And Ogle was 6'6", six, six, and I didn't want no part of that, man. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't need it. We ain't playing no garage. We're straightening up right now. So you don't want to go to God's woodshed. But if you continue as a Christian, you continue in any one of those sins, you're going to get enough of it because you're going to go to God's woodshed and he's going to take care of the matter. I was telling the doorway class a little bit earlier, talking about you know, salvation that, you know, when I was in college, I, I'd grown up and, you know, going to church, you know, and all of that. And I wasn't against it or anything, but I just didn't have any care for it. And when I was in college and I, I quit going to church at all and didn't care and, you know, living in the world and so on. And the thing that began to bother me is that I didn't care. I started caring that I didn't care. And boy, you know, I, and I knew the scriptures where God said, listen, you know, we had the King James Bible back then. And, and it, you know, it, it just said, look, uh, this is the way it works. Uh, if you live in sin and God doesn't discipline you, you're a bastard and not a son. It uses that word. And, and so I, I just began to think to myself, man, that's doing whatever I want to. God's doing nothing. And it ain't bothering me at all. 
And that began to bother me. Because I knew enough of the scripture to know that that's not the nature of a child of God. It bothers a child of God. And these folks, it's not bothering them at all. So th- these are the these exclusions. It, it speaks really here of the heart of these people. This is their heart. This is what they love. This is what they want more of. There's no regret. There's no remorse in their life. There's no struggle. There's no warfare here. This is just, this is what we like. One of my favorite deacons says, we sinned and we wanted more of it. And so that's the way it is apart from Christ. Now the habits of those who are excluded in this list here that we just read, it, it covers really the first commandment, the second commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, and the tenth commandment. These are breaking all kinds of commands here. And I don't know why they didn't include three, four, and five, but Paul got tired, I guess. But these are just absolute direct defiance of God. Now, what does he mean by, we, we have a list here, sexually immoral. What does that mean? Any kind of sexual sin. And, and that includes even your imagination, right? It's what Jesus said. A man looks at a woman, lust after her. He's already committed adultery in his heart. So it's even your imagination. Some of you have been a time in your life where you wish you were some, you're married and you wish you were somebody else because you're tired. You, you didn't realize that when you married that cute little man, he's really a cute little sinner. And you just think to yourself, you've got to be better somewhere else because, man, this guy's hard to live with. And you begin to have thoughts. Right? So sometimes we get on our young folks about it, you know, and they say, you know, but you, you gear up your imagination for immorality and you become a sexually immoral person just by your thought life. He goes on to say, idolaters. That's a question of affection. What do you really love? Where do you find your security? Where do you, where do you find your sense of purpose and meaning? What is it in your life that if God took it away, you'd crumble and die? That's your idol. Whatever controls your time and whatever controls your wallet, that's your idol. That's what you're worshiping. If there's something in your life that you would not lay it down and say, you know what, this is interfering with my pursuit of Christ, then it's become an idol. And so idolaters, and by the way, with the Corinthians, they mixed idolatry and immorality. So they had it all going on here. Then we have adulterers. Everybody knows what that means, to break the vows of of marriage. Then he goes on to say, nor men who practice homosexuality. And what, what the ESV has done here, and I'm going to try not to be graphic, but what the ESV has done here is they've really combined two different words. And if you go back to King James, they used the word the effeminate, right? And then users of men or some such thing. And all, this, all they're doing here is they're describing both the effeminate, and the masculine participant in homosexuality, both of them. So let me, uh, let me just give, a, 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 I guess, a word here, and I, I don't really know what to do about this, men. Uh, I really don't know what to do. But we now live in a culture that pushes for something other than masculinity from our men. Now, masculinity doesn't mean being rough and rude to ladies. That's not what masculinity means. 
But in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, present yourself like a man. There's a difference between men and women in case y'all ain't figured that out yet. You dads must teach masculinity to your boys. No, we don't play with Barbies. That's what men's, that's not what men do, son. No, we don't. No, we don't paint our fingernails. That's not what we do. And if you look, if you watch anything, any commercial on television, it's all about the passivity of the male and the dominance of the woman. Every bit of it is like that. And the mannerisms of young men. Man, we went to rent a car not too long back and I had to talk to this young man and, you know, I just, I just, you know, there's something about it. I just want to take him out and get him dirty. You know, dude, let's go change oil on the car or something. We need to get you dirty. You just got, you know. And, and so just, but, but that's, I, what I'm trying to say is that's applauded by the culture. And so if you're a husband, act like a man. You know, act like a man. Be, be strong. Be courageous. Be a leader. Be gentle with your lady. And for the love of God, make sure it's a lady. But man, that stuff is gone. And I know everything I'm saying right now, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably go to culture hell over it. But I'm just saying, you know, they talk about toxic masculinity all the time now. That's just toxic behavior. Why? Why, why is it toxic behavior? Say, we ain't doing that. I was walking somewhere with my wife the other day and she said, um, I don't know, that looks kind of sketchy. I said, don't worry, honey, I'm with you. What's that mean? Somebody's going to get their face broken if they bother my wife. I mean, it's just the way it's going to be. You know, come on, men. And no wonder when you try to lead your family spiritually and you don't show any sense of firmness about anything that they don't want to follow you. Who, who, who wants to follow that? It's, it's, you know, so, it, you know, did you know there's a ministry where they teach men masculine behavior because they're so feminized by this culture don't 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 do it man just don't listen not not every kid's good at sports that's not the issue here some kids are great at art you know and and so fan you know fan that flame some kids are great at music fan that flame but by george when you do it do it like a man good grief by the way, if it weren't for men, there, you, know, you know, here's, I've got a theory here. There is no, you know, the southern rock genre is dead. You know why? Because there are no more men. I mean, you know, Bruno Mars sings like my sister. It's all, it's all that. You know, we just call it sweetie pie music. And it's all that. And you can't tell the difference between the guys and the girls. And I, it just drives me nuts. I can't, I can't handle it. So, I mean, at least back in the day, you know, the, the sinning guys would sin like men. I don't know. I don't know what this is now. I can't figure it out. We got guys now, their thumbs are more muscular than their biceps. So much video gaming going on. Good grief. Learn how to build a fire. Do something. I don't know. Chop some wood. I don't Good grief.
Well, you, you gotta, you, it's part of this is training and outlook. It really is and how you view yourself. You know what people are worried about now? Parents are worried about their kids' self-esteem. You know what self-esteem is in Greek? Ego. You know what the problem with humanity is? Ego. The big I in the middle of the word sin. That's the problem. And so we give in to them on everything. Oh, well, honey, if that's what you want to do, we just want you to be the best version of yourself. The best version of themselves is a really big sinner. It just is. They're going to gravitate towards sin. That's the way it is. Teach them differently. I don't know. Let's teach them, teach them differently. The hearts of these people and then their habits. Our, our world, our, our culture is filled with sexual immorality. It's, it's become normal with us. I think Adrian Rogers said this. He said, if you're living in immorality, you're either headed for the woodshed or you're headed for hell. One or the other. Then we have words here of, of speaking of people who live for more. Greedy. Just want more and more and more. I think John D. Rockefeller at one point was the richest man in the world. And they said, John, how much more money do you need? He said, one dollar more. Do you know what he did to his kids? This is not all bad, but his motive was all wrong. He made John Jr. carry, at the age of seven, carry a little book around and document every penny the kids spent, every penny. And then at the end of the day, they would reckon it and find out how much change you have left and, you know, is your bookkeeping right? I mean, good grief. Greed. Drunkards, people can't control themselves. Revilers, this, these are people that use their words in order to try to hurt people and tear down their character. Swindlers, those people. So you, you have all these people, you have thieves and swindlers. The difference between a thief and a swindler is the thief does it by violence. That's the only difference. Swindlers do it by cleverness. But they're cheating people of their material resources one way or the other. You know, we have a lot of swindlers down in the Social Security office. <clears throat> Going down there signing up for my tax money when they don't deserve it. If you're able to work, get out and work. Quit thinking somebody else is supposed to take care of you. Swindlers. You can swindle legally, by the way. There are all kinds of laws that can help you to swindle, take advantage of other people's money. And you can do that if you want. Well, we don't want to fall into the trap of these things. I mean, you know, we have a Savior who's tough as nails. And so we don't, we don't want to be those kinds of people, men, especially us. We don't want to be those kind of people. The point of this list is not this. It's, it's not that if a Christian commits one of these sins, they're automatically disqualified from the kingdom forever. It's, that's not the point. But the point is this. If you choose to refuse to repent... You have just notified everyone that you're not in the kingdom. And here's a question that might come from your mind, which is a dangerous question to ask, by the way. But you could ask this question. <clears throat> How many times can I commit one of these sins and still be in the kingdom? If that's the kind of question you're asking, like, how far can I go? How many free sins do I get? 
you know, this ain't Monopoly. You know, you make it around the board one time and you get a get out of get out of hell free card. It's not doesn't work that way. So, if you're asking that kind of question, that's that's revealing already what's in your heart. How much sin can I get away with and still be preserved? And that's showing that you have a heart that's not like the children of God. The children of God are saying always to themselves, how can I get out of sin? How can I get away from sin? How can I sin less? How can I mortify? How can I put to death this urge in me to sin? How can I starve the flesh? What can I do, Lord, in order that I may walk more closely with you? Well, if you think to yourself, I'm going to do all the sinning I can while I'm young. And then when I get older, I'll straighten up. I've heard that before. You know, I've got to live while I can. I mean, I'm going to sow, sow my wild oats, you know. The problem is when you sow wild oats, it always comes up as Johnson grass. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something about sin. It's like crabgrass. It just keeps coming back. One old preacher said this one time, you eat the devil's corn, he's going to choke you with the cob. That's true. I think somebody else said some, something like this one time, you can pursue sin if you like, but here's one thing you can count on. You'll get what you want, but you're not going to want what you get. So in thinking about these things as Christians, we should look at these things and say, these are dangers for me as a Christian I want to get away from this as much as possible, right? These are dangerous things for me as a Christian. The lost person looks at this and sees opportunity. Those are different. It's a matter of the heart. Okay, so those are the exclusions from the kingdom of God, but that's pretty straightforward. Now, here's the thing. Um, your, your sermon to your homosexual cousin or your you know, child or whatever, you know, your grown child or whatever is practicing homosexuality you know, you're not going to go running over there after church and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 6 and say, look here, I want to show you something. That's probably not the method, right? You're going to have to relate. You're going to have to encourage. You're going to have to love. And then when God opens the door of opportunity, then you can speak, okay? You have a lot of earning to do before you have really the right to speak in someone's life like that. So you want to be careful. You understand that people don't take homosexuality as a practice now. They take it as birth. They take it as my emotions feel this way that justifies everything. And so you're attacking their person, not a practice. Okay? So you have to understand that about them. And they look at this entirely different than what the scripture teaches. Okay? So word to the wise there. So qualifications for the kingdom, then this is the good part. Like how in the world do you get in then? Do you get in by not being homosexual, by not being an adulterer, by not being saved? No, you don't get in that way because you can't. It, it's, just, it's not possible. You, you can't be good enough in order to do this. You can't avoid these sins permanently and forever and, and say, I, I did it. Look, God, I did it. I didn't do any of the bad sins. I did great. You can't do it because remember, this is about a heart issue as much as a habit. So how do you do it then? Well, verse 11 tells us the qualifications. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. That is an astounding and comforting statement.
You know, um, I'll, I'll just be candid for just a moment. Um, when we have our people, you know, give testimony, we always want to be careful that we don't glorify sin, right? We don't want to entice people to sin by describing our sin to such detail <laughs> that you tempt people to sin. And so we were talking about Carrie's testimony, and it was just right. It, it was well done. And I was talking to some people and about this, some church members, and before the, uh, her video today, and they asked, said, Pastor, do you think that there's anybody that will reject her because of knowing some things about her past life? You know what I said? Not my people. There's some churches that would, but not my people. Because such were some of you. There's nothing that anybody in here has ever done that I haven't done or didn't want to do. Such were some of you. And so Paul is saying that to all of us. You know, I'm just speaking from the Bible perspective. And when I preach, I have to be in two places at once, up here and sitting down there both. I have to get it both ways. But such were some of you. But notice this, that the word is were. This is not who you are now. And Paul's trying to get them to live their life based upon their identity, not based upon their history. This is your new identity now. You're, you're different. And so what is it that is the dynamic difference? Did some of these people just get to the point and say, you know, I'm just tired of being immoral. Now, you know, I'm just tired of being idolatry. It just doesn't look good. Uh, you know, the insurance goes too high when I do some of these sins, you know, so I better stop. And I don't want to go to jail, by the way, so I better stop doing these things. Is that the difference? These people just talk themselves into a higher level of moral living? It's not the difference. Let me show you what the difference is. Here's the difference. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What is the difference between you and me and the people that live under that bridge addicted to drugs and everything else? What is the difference? It's not the quality of human that we are. I promise you that. We're not a higher quality of humanity than those folks. They're, they're part of Adam's race just like we were. But the difference is you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me, let me point out some things here uh, as, as we look at the characteristics of, of these folks that are in the kingdom of God. First of all, they're changed. He said, and such were some of you. This is the kind of person that you used to be. But you're no longer that kind of person. Lots of times when people first become Christians, they're just some bad sinful habits they got to get rid of. And it takes time. But they're no longer that. Now they have an affection for Jesus and they want out of those things. They're changed. They're cleansed. He says, but you were washed. What's he talking about here? This is the washing of regeneration by the word. Talked about in Titus chapter 1 and chapter 3 and verse 5. Then he says, you were chosen. You were sanctified, he says. Now, again, 
this is not talking about the transformation process of a Christian because he's using, if, if you'll just pardon me for a moment, the aorist tense in the Greek. And all of these verbs are in the aorist tense, meaning they happened at a point in time. If he meant the process of sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, he would use the present tense. This is what's ongoing in your life. But he's talking about all of these things have happened at a point in time. And not only that, you'll also notice that all of these verbs, none of them are active. They're all passive. It's important to note, note that. that. They're all passive verbs. You were washed see some outside force has done this to you you didn't do it you're not washing yourself it's not in the middle voice it's in the passive voice so at some point in the past in time some outside entity washed you at some point in the past in time some outside entity sanctified you at some point in the past some outside force justified you you didn't do this to yourself and he uses this aorist tense of a verb you were sanctified what does he mean by this it means that a point in time in the past that God chose you and reserved you for himself you see God makes the choice and then he goes about fulfilling the choice he's made. Sanctify. Chosen, separated out by God for himself from the mass of depraved humanity. That's what he means by this. And then you were cleared. What does it mean? You were justified. What's that mean? You're cleared of all charges. Now let me tell you something. Every Christian walks away from the cross Guilty of their sin. The difference is you've been cleared of the consequences. It's not as if you never did them. You did them and I did them. But you're cleared. You're just, how, how can God do that? That's unjust. Not if the penalty's paid by his son. It's just. See, in justification, God has two justifications he has to accomplish. He has to justify himself for justifying you. He has to have a grounds of justification. And he is in no way justified just to let sinners go. Go, oh, it's okay. It's okay, Junior. Just do a little better next time. Somebody has to pay the price. And Christ has paid that for you. You were justified. It's a declaration of God. It's an eternal decree of God that you're justified. It cannot be changed. What are the causes of these qualifications? Well, I've already, you know, gave up my punchline, but let's talk about it anyways. I, I told you that all of these are, are passive verbs. It's something's done to you by some outside force. Well, now we, we return to the scripture and we find out what that is. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? By the authority of Jesus, these things have been done to you. By Christ's authority. What authority does he have to do these things? Brothers and sisters, he purchased it. He purchased the right 
with his own blood. That's why after the resurrection, he could say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's a blessed statement because he can declare you washed, sanctified, and justified. It is now your state of being. As a Christian, your state of being is no longer sexually immoral. It's no longer an idolater. It is no longer this list of heinous sins. That is no longer who you are. It's no longer your standing. Because Christ has declared it so. And in this declaration, then there comes a challenge to us. Therefore, since that's what you are, live up to it. You know... I always thought it'd be kind of cool to be an ambassador, like U.S. ambassador somewhere. And you know, I'm sure there's some kind of training or whatever. But you know, the day that you're appointed, that's what you now are as an ambassador for the United States of America. And then you know what you do? Figure out what you're supposed to be doing. You've got to live up to that job. I can remember when I first became a pastor, uh, like the first week I thought I knew what I was doing. You know, I was young and, you know, full of energy and, you know, ignorance on fire. And so, you know, just, you know, tearing up. I mean, just, you know, and let's do this, let's do this, you know, and so full of energy. And then after a while, I thought to myself, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And, you know, the thing is, you know, I had some dear old saints of God, you know, 85 years old. And they're like, Pastor, don't worry, you'll get it. They knew more about it than I did. But you know what I had to do? I had to live up to the position. I had to learn how to live up to it. Not, not just in methodology, but also in principle. Live up to it. And you do the same thing as a Christian. Now live up to it. God has done this in your life. Live up to it. Now, how does that come about then in your life? How do these things become personal reality? Well, you see the means here. These things are done Under the authority or according to the authority of Jesus. He has declared it to be so. But how does it become personal in your life? How does it become an inner living reality? He tells us here. By the Spirit of God. The preposition is one of means. It's by the means of the Holy Spirit of God. In salvation, it is God who's decreed it. But it is Christ who accomplished it. And it's the Holy Spirit of God who applies it. And he applies it to your life in that way. See, you can know all these things that I just said. And you can believe all these things. But unless the Holy Spirit of God personally applies it to you, it amounts to nothing. The basis for all that God has done for us is Christ. And the means by which he personally applies it to you is the Spirit of God. Now, what shall I do? Uh, with all of this information, what, what do we do with it? Okay, well, let's try to help ourselves here just a little bit. Okay, first of all, do not deceive yourself into thinking things like this. It's okay to sin one more time because God forgives. Do not think that way. He is a forgiving God, that is true. But remember this, the condition For forgiveness is repentance. And that means change. 
Have you ever noticed this as a Christian? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sin? And how hard repentance is. Henry Blackaby said this one time. And I'm not a fan of all Henry Blackaby's theology. But I'm a fan of the man. You know he loved the Lord. And Henry Blackaby said this one time. He said you 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 can go sin on your own terms. But you'll repent on God's terms. And those are not easy terms. They're tough. And you know we think about things like the prodigal son. You know he comes home. And the father embraces him, fatted calf and everything. We say, well, God is like that. But you know what? That son never comes back unless he goes through all the agony, heartache, and difficulty that he went through. You see, the father will take us through those things in order to make us want to come home. That young man left arrogant and full of himself. He returned home empty and nothing of himself inside but a hope in his father. So, dear Christian... Don't start thinking to yourself, I can get by with this sin one more time. Do you know when the time to change is? Now, today. Sin is an entangling cord. It's like, it's like it always wraps, or it's like a vine. And so once you start watering that vine, it begins to grab hold of your life more and more and more. And then when you want to get free from it, guess what? You're entangled. And it takes... A lot of of work to be able to get out of that. So be sure that you understand that you don't want to play with sin. If you will not change, then you have no grounds to declare your Christianity. If you're unwilling to change, if you're not bothered by your sin, if you're comfortable with it and you're not willing to change, you have no grounds to declare yourself a Christian because we're different from that. Again, not that we can't commit those sins, but we can't live there. Number two, maybe this. If you're thinking, do I have to stop sinning before I become a Christian? The answer is no. You don't stop sinning in order to become a Christian. You become a Christian in order to stop sinning. You, you do have to have a heart commitment that you're willing to give those sins up. That, that, there's no doubt about that. Your heart has to change about that. And you think, well, my heart hasn't changed. You know what I would do? I'd pray every day, Lord, change my heart. But your heart does have to change. There's not a sin that can prevent you from, from coming to God except the sin that you won't give up. But if you're willing in your heart to give it up, God will give you the power to carry it out. He'll give you the power to change. It is His work in you. It's God in you who works to, so that you would will and do of His good pleasure. It's God that does that in your life. But He's not going to do it as long as you're trying to hang on to your pet sin and have Jesus at the same time. But I want to say this to you. It doesn't matter if you've been guilty of every single one of these sins. God knows how to take a chunk of coal turned into a diamond. He can do it. But you must repent and you must trust upon Christ and put your full confidence in him. It's interesting, just a simple decision in time opens your heart to the work of God. And then he comes in and makes the changes. Maybe you're here today, you're a Christian, like you're just, you're practicing some sin right now that you need to quit. I want to tell you something, repentance is active. You have to have a plan. 
I sit down and talk with men sometimes. They say, Pastor, you know, I need to quit this or quit that sin. Okay, well, what's your plan? Well, I don't have one. Well, then you ain't going to quit. I need to know your plan. Repentance is a plan. I'm going to do this or that. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this sin. I'm not going to do it again. I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. So here's what I plan to do. Okay, great. God knows your heart then. Your plan may even be a bad one, but he knows you intend to do something about this. And when your intention gets right, God will work. He'll deliver you, but you got to let him do that in your life. He wants to. Let him do it. Maybe you've never started following Christ and you just think, I'm too sinful. No, you're not too sinful. You're just too prideful. You have to humble yourself like a little child. Come needy to Jesus. I need the Lord. I need his forgiveness. I need him to work in my life. I need eternal life. I need, I have not that of my own. I need Jesus. You just come to the cross as a beggar. He'll grant you an inheritance that you couldn't imagine. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for giving us firm language, pointed language. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to get advice from someone you have clearly said in your word. There's just a a dynamic difference between those in the kingdom and those who are not. Father, we're masters of self-deception. That's what we really do well. And I pray, Father, for that person that's outside of Christ right now. They don't know him, not in a personal way. Father, we, we sit here and stand here in absolute total dependence upon you to awaken that heart to the need and to give faith so that it can believe upon Jesus. We're utterly unable to do anything for ourselves father in this realm and i pray that you would intervene on the behalf of those that need christ today father i pray for your people today lord in this world that is filled with sin and the practices of it are all around us we're inundated with it it's at our fingertips now and i pray father that you would help your people to live up to who they are. Not what they were, but who they are. And I pray for the dynamic working of the Spirit of Christ in us, that we would live for your glory. And Father, I pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our King, and our Savior. Amen.